The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Brogut on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. I'm Ken Smith. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. He's the Broga. We're both certified financial planners and partners in wealth management firm Empirical Wealth Management. This show, Empirical Investing Radio, is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning ideas, general financial knowledge that will help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. want to help you preserve the capital you've worked hard to build over your lifetime. And uh, we do that, Ethan, by talking about various topics each show right. that are interesting and uh, hopefully relevant and helpful. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Along the way, um, last week I was gone. I don't know if we ran a, a show, but um, I was in California at a seminar for a 401k conference. Mm-hmm. And I um, just thought at the beginning of the show here we could talk a little bit about that, Ethan. I think we should. And uh, the show, the the show, the um, conference they included a guest speaker was Dylan Radigan, who was a uh, MSNBC talk show host, very highly rated show for NBC. That was a financial related uh, show. Okay. And you know who he is, Dylan Dylan Radigan. I don't actually. Um, and he and he had a couple of interesting things to say. I would you know you could Google him and watch a few of his clips. Um, <coughs> But he, he left the industry. He's working with hydroponic farming now. Oh, really? Veterans and uh, work on these hydroponic farms that are meant to uh, be a lot more efficient mm-hmm. in terms of farming, using less water and things like that, and uh, kind of greenhouse type of stuff. But he came in, they, the um, sponsor of the of the conference, Fairside, engaged him, and he came in and talked. And he had a couple of interesting things to say that I thought I'd share with you. As we haven't had a chance to talk about it, you're so busy. Indeed, helping helping people, and uh, <laughs> he. Uh, one of the things he talked about was the industry, and so here he is. I thought it was interesting because he was in the a part of the financial media, mm-hmm. and he was saying how that 90 percent of what the financial media does, and also Wall Street, the bigger wirehouses do, um, it has to do with product generation and revenue generation, and yep. very little of it. Um, really addresses what, in his view, clients and individuals need the mm-hmm. most of, which is really understanding. And he broke it down into three different things. And I didn't know if I have my notes here, but um, he broke it down into into three different things. Um, oh, I got it right here. 
which had to do with, do I have enough money? Am I going to have enough money to live the way that I want to live? Um, you know, the income risk issue. Uh, can I make enough and is it going to be reliable mm-hmm. throughout my lifetime? Mm-hmm. Then he talked about purchasing power risk. Can I buy the things that I need when I need them? And so will I be able to afford those things? And surprise risk. When something terrible happens, what am I going to do, basically? And so he kind of outlined all of this. And uh, he's saying hey, the vast majority of the financial side of the business is focused on product generation, creating investment products that they can pitch. And they're all very excited about their formulas and all their strategies and how complicated it is and how it's supposed to do this and that. Right. Um, and he was saying how you know this this gap between feelings and facts uh, is a huge opportunity um, for somebody in the industry to come out and to address what individuals really need, uh, which is not a lot of more in my view not a lot of information uh, about daily news you know, market news for example mm-hmm. on the financial media side and also not a lot of product. We don't need more products per se, sure. although products can always evolve and get better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've often talked about the concept that most of what's going on is really not to help clients achieve financial objectives or help investors out there. Uh, it's really to make money for the for the purveyors of these things. So if they're selling, you know, it's a TV show, if it's magazines or newspapers, it's really about generating advertising revenue and how do you do that sure and so um, the big disconnect is that you know the on the on the financial side he was saying the product purveyors they they're obsessed with showing off who has the best product mix or the most sophisticated tools um, and he was saying you know for, for the most part a lot of these financial firms in his view uh, have continued to exist only because they had dominance uh, they had this uh, incumbency that they just got so big and have been around for so long that that momentum has kept them going at a time where they're really not doing the right thing. And some of this I'm paraphrasing with my own views here, so I don't want to mm-hmm. say that I'm quoting him word for word. I was just in the conference. Um, but the but the customers, you know, he said, were, are grossly underserved. And he's saying it's not because, he said, it's not because of lack of time or or lack of products, but because no one speaks to them with the emotional awareness um, you know, that we, you would use if it was you were dealing with your own money, for example. You're very keenly aware of how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. That if you asked yourself those feelings, hey, you know, those in his view are things that am I am I making enough to support my family? Am I am I going to be able to do that reliably? Reliably, is that something you worry about or think about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, hey, with the money that I'm putting away here, am I going to have enough later? Right. You know, or if I lose this income, will I have enough to be able to continue to? Um, and what happens if something bad happens? You know. Now, I think his three, not being a financial advisor himself per se, I think uh, are a little simplistic. But the point of it is, Ethan, that I, that I thought was good is that. In his view, none of the major firms out there are addressing the emotional issues or the real issues. They're too busy showing off or trying to present complicated products to people. Yeah. To solve, and this is my words now, to solve yesterday's problems. 
you know, there's a whole line of products to solve what happened in 2008. Mm-hmm. There's the real, a whole the, line of products to solve what happened in 2001 to after the fact. The problems are they're, they're symptomatic. They address the symptoms and not the core issues is the main main point, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very typical. I mean, you have a product that's the very and that's the very last decision that you make. But I mean, in order to if you're buying a mutual fund, for example. Um, Hey, you can really shortcut the whole the whole scheme if you want to. Just buy that, or you can. Hey, what's the rationale for getting to that point? And most people skip skip the part where it's hard to get to that point. You know what I mean? All the planning that goes involved with then selecting the final step, selecting the investment. And I think that is. I, I agree with him that there is that opportunity, Ethan, and it's our goal and objective here to to be one of those advisors that do get it. Mm-hmm. That we're not so fascinated with creating investment products or um, bragging about how smart or sophisticated the models are, but really understanding the true concerns of the investors that we're trying to help. Right. The people that we're trying to help. And and those are are more emotional, um, real issues. And that is, you know, I think where if you're out there, you know, finding an advisor that is more concerned with the things that you're worried about, the things that you're trying to accomplish in your life, the goals, the values, the objectives, and clearly putting together a prudent plan. I mean, you need to understand how to... It's not enough to be a psychologist. You also need to understand some financial concepts here to how do you get there. Um, It's just that I agree with what he was saying, and he made a, a pretty interesting comment that he follows Warren Buffett, you know, has followed him. He, he was a journalist, right? And everyone knows who Warren Buffett is. It's in the financial industry. Mm-hmm, sure. And he was saying how funny it is that everyone he, he thought he, he thought it was an it was it was an interesting observation that all these people love to herald Warren Buffett as this investment guru um, and how much of a sage he is. And they go to you know people camp out and they go to his his, his uh, annual meetings and mm-hmm, then, mm-hmm. but nobody actually listens to him. Right. Even advisors love to throw out Warren Buffett quotes. Sure. But nobody listens to what he what he says when he says, "Hey, I think the market." One of the things Warren Buffett says, "I think the market should only be open a few times a year." (laughs) Weren't you listening? (laughs) (laughs) And so he was saying, you know, here Warren Buffett will say, "I think the market should only be available, you know, open a few times a year to trade," and. People will go, yeah, 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 Warren Buffett's great, and then they get right back to their day trading. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. Um, and all through, I mean, he's talked about most investors really should be using passively managed, right. diversified investment vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, he said a lot of things that people go, yeah, he's really successful, but don't do. And they kind of blow it off, and that's what Dylan was saying. I was—I'm not saying this, but I, now that he mentioned it, I thought it—it it was a pretty interesting and good point. Mm-hmm. But, hey, we all like to throw those quotes around and, and look at his success, but few people actually engage in it, right? Um, in some of the things that he's said, and I was watching another clip the other day um, where an advisor was talking a little bit about Warren Buffett and saying, hey, certain things he, he does, and he says he has an economic interest in. Um, but the things that he's talked about uh, with regard to what most individuals, he doesn't really have much of an economic interest in. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
it's just it is just an it's it's kind of an interesting concept. So I just wanted to share that with you um, that you know those those insights that he shared about as as we're working as advisors, our goal really should be to get on the client level and on the emotional level to understand what it is that they're dealing with, rather than presenting very complicated, sophisticated financial product mm-hmm. models, but really understanding and being able to communicate. How are we solving your problem? You know, the things that you're worried about, which is how how are you going to um, how are you going to make enough money? Is it reliable? You know, how, things are those basic uh, on the basic level that people are worried about. Um, and if you're the investor listening to this, those are things that you should be striving to get answers for that you won't find in traditional product or advisors that are pushing different investment hedge funds, market timing strategies, um, structured products, all that stuff um, isn't going to lead you to to successful answers to those questions alone. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Hugh? No, that's not going to do it. You have to know, I think, the reason behind the reasons and uh, dig a little deeper. Things aren't, I don't know, aren't, aren't always easy, especially in finance. You know, there's a lot, like you said, a lot of other Motivated parties interested in, in doing things other than what's perhaps in your best interest. A lot of self-interest out there. So I think uh, it's good to take a step back and, and look at it that way. I think it's also good as a reminder to realize that we all have that very emotional aspect of our fi- of dealing with our finances. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to have someone who understands the things that you're dealing with. But I think it's also important that you have that emotional independence, someone that's not, you have someone in there that's not making decisions in emotional uh, periods of time. And one of the things he, he also mentioned, which I thought was interesting, is how at the time that you're the most stressed emotionally, um, that the blood rushes out of your brain. Um, and so hmm. you're making decisions where you're getting the least amount of oxygen to your brain when you're making decisions <laughs> under emotional pressure or stress. I see. So I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Hi, Ethan. Well, uh, thanks for entertaining that. Um, There was a a couple of articles that um, Mm -hmm. Eric sent to me. I thought we could go through about uh, the risk of um, bond managers right now. Um, And some bond managers are doing very well relative to their stated benchmarks. Okay. But is there more to it than the eye can see? Should we... You talk about that a little bit. Okay. So if you're putting money into a bond fund because it's it's doing better than some standard index, um, do you know what you're getting there? Right. And uh, and then talking a little bit about in the Wall Street Journal is an article about stock analysts. I'd love to talk about. I think we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll we'll jump on those topics. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor, or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. 
That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. As your business grows, are you growing with it? Do you have the right balance of time, attention, work, and personal life? Take the growing pains out of growth and tune into The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. If you are spending most of your energy managing problems rather than focusing on taking your business to the next level, our program will give you the steps you need to make sure you have everything in place for forward-thinking business leadership. The Business Edge is heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back at Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside uh, Ken Smith. We're coming into our second segment of the show today. And uh, Ken, I think for this segment, we were going to talk about a couple of articles, right? One or two of these uh, at this moment. Yeah, that would be great. But before we do, I forgot, I wanted to mention, you know, I was, um, we hit a, you know, we're hitting highs in the stock market. That's true. Um, as you may or may not <laughs> I've <know>. noticed. <laughs> I have noticed that. Good, good. I'm glad you're tuning in. Um, and so one of the questions that, that has, has come up is, hey, are, are, should I be worried about that? You know, should I be adjusting my portfolio as a result of that? Right. And um, we talked a couple of weeks ago on a show about this. This is a study that some of the guys or friends over at DFA did where they looked at the markets to get where it's gotten today is cons- had to hit new highs all along the way, right? Yep. Um, and But... After hitting a new high, uh, was there any research or, or results that showed that it was, a, it was a better or worse time to be invested? And really, there was no relationship, to sum it up. The fact that we hit new high in itself is not really indica- indicative of being in or out of the market. It's not a good market timing signal. Right, right. I hear you. And we tend not to subscribe much to technical analysis anyway, because there's really no hard evidence that that's a consistently good way to invest your money. Mm-hmm. Um, so the answer to that is no, just because we hit a new high alone. But but if we were hitting new highs, and the one thing that I have found some statistical significance in would be the valuations of the market. Right, of course. If we weren't earning any money, if companies weren't earning any more money, but people kept bidding up the prices indefinitely to extremely high values, right. um that that could be potentially present a problem or something that would be a value in terms of making a decision about my portfolio. But even there, the definition of that, I mean, the P.E. ratio going back to 1900 at times at one time hit 86 times earnings. And some of those extremes are very short-term 
aberrations, say how in 2000 where, where companies suddenly have virtually dropped from, you know, Seventy dollars a share of earnings on the S and P down to you know forty right in one year because all of a sudden there's all these write offs so you you have to understand that and account for that in in looking at these ranges mm-hmm. but uh, the lowest the P E ratio got over that time is four point nine times earnings so wow five times the average hang on do you have it do you, do you know when that is do you have that data there uh, I do not have that but I I'm pretty sure it was maybe Close to the depression period right. of time, uh, I can get that. I didn't. Eric has year by year, month. By I was month. just curious myself okay. intellectually. See, well, when, when was it most recently, or was it in the past sometime? Or, or it was not recently. Okay, no, not even through the two recent downturns, it never got there. Right. Um, so this was in the in the past. Must have been okay. The average is fifteen point five over the entire period. Hmm. Uh, but what I think you have to keep in mind, what I'm trying to share here, Ethan, if you're this thing and you're wondering, hey, what should, should I be doing anything? What should I do? Should I get out? I? One is the fact that we hit the high in itself doesn't mean anything. Two is the one thing that does mean something is the earnings component because fundamentally what's driving returns over long periods of time are going to be dividends that the companies pay, earnings yep. that they that they they bring in, right? That's right. Um, and so if you look at that and you say, well, geez, in, in January 2000, so really the market began to decline, right, in March of 2000, I believe it was, when we kind of started the, the decline. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. The first From decline. the tech bubble, yes. Yeah, from the tech bubble. Exactly right. Um, so earnings probably even dropped from January. This is January. They were $43 a share. Okay. Um, well, December of 2012 here, because we haven't gotten the quarterly earnings yet for the first quarter of 2013. Right. But what I do have is through the end of December – of 2012, and it was $87.40 per share earnings. That's over a 100% increase over a decade where stocks really haven't done very well. Wow. Yeah, that's true. And defined by the S&P is what I mean. I get you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, you'd really have to believe that, uh, that the earnings were going to disappear. And in order to say, hey, the reason why I should be adjusting my portfolio, we're trading it. Today we're trading at um, an estimated PE of about 17.9, which is a little bit higher than the long-term average. But we've had a pretty good run-up in stocks. I would also say that. Uh, yeah, what would you say? Just <clears throat> the idea of supporting. Well, is it reasonable that the current market environment supports a higher price-to-earnings ratio? And I would probably say, yeah, well, sure, probably so. Mainly because bond yields are so low. Right. It makes sense that in a low-yielding environment. Money that normally be in bonds might be in stocks, thus inflating the price uh, above and beyond what might what might be uh, historically reasonable. That would be reasonable. Yeah, I think it is. Other reasons would be risk perceptions, right? Sure. People pay more when they think their earnings will materialize mm-hmm. at a higher growth rate than previously thought. People mm-hmm. pay less when they don't believe that earnings are going to materialize. So if you thought that earnings are going to be flat or negative over the next 10 years, you certainly wouldn't be paying a premium over historical market averages, right? Right. If you thought they were going to grow at an average rate or in excess of that, the market in general would pay a premium. In addition to the fact that your point, which is very valid, that we're comparing it against the alternatives here. Exactly. And we're getting zero yield in in the fixed income world. Um, Would I be willing to pay... A little higher price to get those earnings to get that dividend. Right. 
Um, so good point. I just wanted to bring that up in the context of hey, the, the thing that I would look at or be most worried about, uh, Ethan, is you know earnings. Earnings are what's going to drive the return of your stock and bond portfolio, your stock portfolio, right? Um, over the long run, exactly right. And earnings have have been pretty resilient at least over our history. And I think if your strategy is one in which you're diversifying globally, um, earnings are pretty interconnected to the growth of the economies around the world. That's right. And while various economies and various stock markets individually stumble, if we looked at year last year's individual countries, you see a huge spread yeah. in terms of growth and, and even stock returns of, the, of their markets. But on an aggregate, they do a, they're pretty resilient. Yep. Um, and I think that's the nature of our of, of our system. I, I agree with you, and I think it's in part because there's a strong motivation for people to earn more money. There's a, a large economic incentive to to grow. Right. Yeah, I mean, at the individual level, that's true, and it's true at the corporate level. It's true at the the nation level, right? Everybody wants that, so it's very difficult to put a cap on that. I don't know how you would stop it, actually, at least in this economic system that we have called capitalism, um, which is spreading around the world. Um, very, very difficult to stop. Yeah, uh, there may be downturns, there may be slowdowns, there may be uh, recessions or even depressions at times. Uh, but I think it's a very hard concept. You know, the the human spirit's hard to to dampen, you know what I mean? You're very resilient yourself, Ethan. Well, that's true. That is true. You know, occasionally you feel down, but most of the time you come back. Usually. I have every time so far. And that's what I appreciate about <laughs> you. Okay, well, good points. Good points. All good points. So hopefully um, that that helps you put things into perspective as to what should I be looking at. Um, and yes, even if we look at this estimate, it's not, we're not trading it at some extremely uh, high rate. And you also should be looking at your time horizon over uh, the more relevant those valuations because they don't work perfectly. But the longer the time horizon, the better. Right. Um, I mean, if, if, if we're trading at an extreme level and you've got a short, you should be adjusting. But mostly because you have a short time horizon. Right. Okay. So here's this article. The bond market, well, it's right out of the Wall Street Journal here, Ethan. The bond market can't be this easy to beat, can it? And uh, I'll see what I can do here in a few minutes reading through this. Bond managers are suddenly looking superhuman. Investors have handed nearly three-quarters of their new fixed income investments to bond pickers over the last year. As $230 billion has poured into actively managed bond funds, while just $63 billion has gone into bond index funds. Hmm. Now, we know the statistics are very dismal for professional bond managers to beat bond market indexes. <laughs> so this is not a good statistic. Yeah. Why are the same investors who have turned their backs on stock pickers, why are they showering money on bond pickers? Past performance, of course. It's the usual suspect, even. Mm-hmm. Last year, 79% of the intermediate-term bond funds, which hold a mix of government and corporate bond funds maturing in 5 to 10 years, beat the comparable bond index according to S&P Dow Jones indices. So 79% of them, Ethan, beat their stated index. That's overwhelming success in that year, right? Yeah. Over the past 12 months, investment research firm Morningstar estimates intermediate bond funds have surpassed the indexes against which they measure themselves by an average of 1.8 percentage points, which is pretty big in this environment. Huge. Long-term government bond funds have beaten their chosen benchmarks by 2.5%. 
Since bond managers have long struggled to, be, to break even with the averages, such market-pounding performance seems close to miraculous. But investors need to realize that the laws of financial physics haven't been suspended. <laughs> All these funds are run by active bond pickers. If history is any guide, they won't outperform the averages forever. The hot bond funds have nothing to do with the index funds, including exchange-traded funds that for years have been taking the investment world by storm. Index funds don't even try to buy the best-performing securities and avoid the worst. Instead, they simply drive fees to rock bottom by holding all the investments in the market index. In stocks, ETFs have prevailed, but in the bond market, ETFs have been a disadvantage, at least temporarily. Unlike an ETF, a fund run by an active manager needn't be a carbon, carbon copy of the market. It can take more risk, and that is exactly what many bond pickers are doing. So here we're getting under the sheets a little. We're figuring this out. Even. Sure. For now, that has pushed the returns past those of the ETFs. Consider duration a measure of the fund sensitivity to interest rates based on which the bonds are held in the portfolio. To get a rough sense of how much the price of a bond would fall if interest rates rise, multiply the rate by the, by the fund's duration. If interest rates were to go up by two percentage points and uh, the duration was five, you'd have a drop or decline in your portfolio of about 10%. Mm -hmm. Since the first half of 2009, the average duration of actively uh, run intermediate bond funds lengthened from 4.4 to 4.8 years, according to Morningstar. Over the same period, the duration of the comparable Barclays U.S. Intermediate Government Index barely budged from 3.8 to 3.9 years. The ETFs that track it and similarities also stood pat since their job is to match the benchmark. As a result, active funds are taking more interest rate risks than they were four years ago, buying longer-term bonds to provide that higher yield now, but they will lose more money when the rates finally rise. ETFs, on the other hand, are taking almost the identical level of risk as before. That isn't all. Over the same period, Morningstar reckons the quality of the intermediate bond funds has slipped from an average credit rating of single A or excellent to triple B, or one notch above the lowest investment grade rating. This is shocking. Do you find this shocking? Well, not really. Even as the credit quality of indexes has stayed constant. There's only two ways to do it. And they're, they're, they're extending maturities here and obviously dripping in credit quality. So no, no surprises in my book here. And I don't think there's any crime in that. I mean, here we, in our system, we have different models sure. that have different credit exposures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to talk about the difference in that, though. Okay. Well, I think we need to take a quick break. And right. uh, when we do, we'll come back and talk a little bit about that. Sounds good. Thank you. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. 
Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at empiricalfs.com. Did you know that at the root of every business problem lies a communication issue? Communication Nation, a show that brings effective business communication practices to the masses, addresses a number of topics and talking points that impact your professional development, as well as business productivity and profitability. Host Jill Schiffelbein makes the theoretical tangible. Tune in each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be ready to become a better communicator with Communication Nation. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. This is our third segment of the day. And uh, we were just wrapping up an article um, entitled, The Bond Market Can't Be This Easy to Beat, Can It? Uh, by Jason Zweig. Is that right? Zweig or Zweig? Zweig. Zweig. Um, pretty like well. Like your swag. <laughs> pretty <laughs> well. Nice swagger. He's a well known uh, author and reporter. Zweig, yeah. And reporter. <laughs> For the Wall Street. No, that was very loud. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's a little loud. But, uh, and like just talking about the uh, the uh, the active funds over the last year or so have beat some of the indexes uh, in, in the bond realm. And underneath the hood here, we, we see the explanation as to why it sounds like. Um, yeah, that's correct. What is that? So, why, why, are we, why are we playing Angry Monkeys now on the radio? <laughs> I don't know. I like it. So, yes, you're right, Ethan, and the, the, the gist of the article here is that in order to increase the return, these active bond managers increased the duration, which is a risk that comes with that. They also increased the credit exposure, the risk of the credit, the types of bonds lower than the indexes. Now, an active manager that was sitting here uh, would say, well, that's why you're paying us, right? We're, we're looking to uh, add returns over the index by adjusting those. Those are the levers that we have to pull, right? Sure. Now, my response to that would be, that would be great if you were do, if you understood what you were doing. So if you said, another way of doing that, for example, would be simply to buy uh, longer-term ETFs, bond ETFs, and buy ETFs with lower quality exposure. So you could have done the same thing, right? And I was saying, hey, what we're doing is we're, we're tracking various models of credit exposures to see what the spreads are between risk less or very um, very uh, conservative bonds, like treasuries, for example, and bonds that have credit risk, like high-yield bonds, so those junk bonds he was talking about. So real quick, back up for okay. just a second. Talking about yeah, credit spreads. Back up a second. You're talking about, when you, when you say credit spreads, um, you're talking about the difference in yield between... 
a say a risk a treasury for example versus a corporate bond of similar maturity Mm-hmm. Just for the listeners who aren't familiar with that term, yes, we're talking or analyzing the differences between, say, a five-year treasury and a five-year corporate bond. That's the difference in yield. There is it's called the credit spread, right? Because there is dropping in credit quality. So that's what we're talking about here with this. And those spreads, the spread or the difference changes depending on what the market's perception of risk is. Exactly. Yes. Um, and supply and demand in the market. So at times where the spread is very narrow, there's a very small difference. Uh, treasuries or adhering closer to the index would make more sense. Where the spreads are wider, mm-hmm. um, you might be willing as an investor to take on some of that credit risk or even some duration risk if there's enough compensation there. Right. My problem with the bond pickers um, is a lot of times they're doing it and taking credit for doing it while taking beating the index w- without being clear that they had to take more risk to do it. All right. So if we're creating models of, of bond portfolios, we say this one has very little duration or interest rate risk. Mm-hmm. Um, this it also has very little credit risk. But we're at a time where there's a, a nice payoff if we increase uh, that spread is wide. There, there's we get enough compensation to increase the credit exposure. Right. That we think it's worthwhile doing it, mm-hmm. and for the investor in the right circumstance, that would make sense on a one on one basis with each client that we would work with, we'd say, hey, should we put them into this credit model or should we have them in that credit model? The thing we wouldn't do is sell the conservative credit model, put them in the risky credit model, and then take credit for beating the conservative model index. Right. That's the problem I have with these bond fund managers and mutual fund managers and some of the big product purveyors in Wall Street is that they want credit for doing things without explaining the risk they took to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't that they called their investors and said, hey, what we're going to do is, because if that was the case, if they were buying all junk bonds, for example, then the benchmark over that time period should have been junk bonds. Mm-hmm. Unless it was sold as a fund that, hey, our job is to go back and forth between risky investments and less risky investments, but we'll always use the less risky investment benchmark as our hurdle rate. <laughs> right? Right. That that wouldn't seem fair. So <laughs> yes. you need to have a more objective way of measuring that. If you're selling your product as I'm going to beat this, well, then what is you know index A? Um, it's just very convenient that index A a lot of times happens to be the easiest one to beat or the most conservative. And typically in the market, risk and reward are intertwined there. Mm-hmm. So you should expect a higher return over the long run for taking permanent expo- uh, or credit risk or other exposures that will reward you. But that doesn't mean they did a great job. Um and I think that's what the article is saying. And I'm just reading here. A handful of bond pickers, Daniel Fuss of the Loomis Sales Fund, Bill Gross of PIMCO, and Jeffrey Gunlick of the Double Line Funds have racked up impressive long-term track records. But the vast majority of active bond managers have fared poorly in bear markets as in 2008 when active intermediate funds lost an average of 4.8%, even as the iShares Intermediate Government Credit gained 6%. Wow, so that's an enormous difference in return <clears throat> over that period of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very clear that the the, the average uh, intermediate active fund there 
did not hold the same securities as the, the index, right. right? They they owned a lot lower quality, I would say, uh, bonds on average than the index did, and that's what that explains the difference of returns. Bond funds still have a place since they diversify the risk of stocks, but before you buy an active bond fund with fabulous performance over the past year, check out how it has performed over the past five and ten years. See how it did in 2008. The best test of whether a manager can avoid the next disaster is whether he avoided the last one. I don't agree with that at all, by the way. <laughs> so that's Jason Zweig's viewpoint. That's not my viewpoint at all, and that's, I think, evidenced out in the empirical data that um, you can have great managers for long periods of time, like Bill Miller, yeah. um, another, and, and have disastrous returns in any short-term period of time following a great track record. Um, so I don't agree with, with that statement, and I, I don't know that there's enough evidence to show that some of these bond fund managers, if you really dissected out the risk exposures that they took, even the great ones here, really did so beyond um, statistical chance. It's got to be the same thing with stocks. I mean, long-term studies show very well, very clearly, that the, uh, the bond active bond folks don't beat the index, the bond index. The same thing is true on the stock side. Um, you can run, among, along, we've talked about this before, I think, on the show, do a, a return attribution study, right, with the stock pieces, right? You can very well see, well, their, their performance is a result of the exposures inside the fund, basically. That's right. That's, that's always going to be the case. There's no, there's no like free lunch. There's no magic. There's no unicorns. There's no rainbows. It's, oh, it's really? always yeah. a function of risk and return, right? So anyhow, I, and one one piece of advice I like here, by the way, is hey, don't chase the one year performance. I think unicorns exist. My daughter. <laughs> check it out. Check out how it's done over the last five and ten years, and that, that likely will help put it in perspective. Yeah. I think you have more luck finding a unicorn. I think than an active bond picker who's going to beat the bond market, accounting for adjusting appropriately for the risks they take in. Yes, um, it has to be the case. It has to be. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but I think it's interesting. Two hundred thirty million dollars poured into actively managed bond funds. Um, it's interesting that the that the money that's poured into these low-paying bond funds during a time where equities have delivered multiple oh, years of returns. That's true. Since March 2009, even. Um, in terms of the disparity, I, I bet most flows are like that, though. You know, For the stock market, for example, only 20% of the money or so is in in, in uh, passive types of investments. 80% is already in active funds. Right. So you'd expect approximately new dollars flowing in to be 80-20. So I'm not, I don't know what the ratio normally is in terms of the indexes on the bond side. But I would expect, on average, more, more money flows into active funds than pass, passive funds anyways. So it's not a surprise to me. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't review that statistic. I'm just reading this article sure. for the first time with you. So you're right. In general, um, while passively managed uh, investments have gained a lot of ground on traditional active managers, and you see larger and larger pension yeah. funds wisening up uh, to this every day, almost wisening up. I love um, it. Wisening up. <laughs> Getting smart. Yeah. Um, it's still not. Uh, you know, more than 30%, right? Um, which is good for us, actually. More for us. Indeed. All right. Next articulal here, Ethan. Uh, stock analysts tell all. And uh, You know, I, I read this article before, mm-hmm. and uh, I, need, I need a little help understanding the conclusion of this. So I'm, I'm glad we're going over this on the radio here. Okay. Well, I'm just going to peruse through it here for the first time, too, but... As law firms have recently been reminding their clients, Wall Street analysts can get into trouble if they obtain 
non-public information from managers of the companies they follow. The SEC under Regulation FD has strict rules that seek to limit the ability of any investor to get early or private information. But you can still dream. Consider a new study of stock analysts <laughs> by a team of accounting and finance professors. The analysts rank private phone calls with management as the most useful source of information for generating earnings forecasts. And promoting private access to corporate management remains one of the best ways for an analyst to get a rise out of clients. Hmm. As one analyst told researchers, if I call up a money manager, a hedge fund, whoever, and I've got to, uh, to, and I've got a call to make on a stock, and I'm able to say, hey, by the way, we were able to spend 20 to 30 minutes talking to senior management, ba ba boom, their ears are just straight up. It's a direct quote. Boom. Uh, I threw in a little bit. It's boom. Earlier this year, accounting professors Lawrence Brown of, Temp- of Temple University and Andrew Call of the University of Georgia, um, Michael Clement of the University of Texas, a lot of names here, surveyed 365 sell-side analysts and did 18 direct interviews detailing how analysts do their work and view their roles. They made the results anonymous to ensure confidentiality. Can I ask you a question? I would love to. And if you, hopefully I won't... Uh... You know, stump the band here, but yeah. I'm not exactly clear what 365 sell side analysts are. What, what are what's a sell side analyst? It's just that they're doing research on um, they're doing research on on equities. Okay, but they they're um, they're not doing the I think the underwriting part of it. Um, oh, so they're just researching it. A sell side analyst is just researching it to produce an independent research report. Okay, um, so. Not, not like you say, not involved in the under underwriting or distribution of the stock itself. Yeah. It's already out in the marketplace. The stock's already out; they're publicly traded, that sort of thing, and they're looking for um, an independent opinion on that stock. Sounds like. Yeah, and how about when we come to the break? I'll come back and give you the exact definition. Okay. Because um, we only got a few minutes, but I'll look it up and and I'll give you the more technical definition of the difference between a buy side analyst and a sell side analyst. I think that'd be useful. That'd be fantastic. Um, the point of it is, though, I, that it, in this first couple of paragraphs, because we're going to take a break, that I'm already seeing here is that these analysts are selling research to managers. Right. Right. So they're selling it to equi- the hedge fund managers, selling it to selling the research to them. Okay. Um, and to do that, they have to put some some lipstick on the pig, as as they like to say in that industry. Right. By saying, "Hey, I had some private conversations," even though private information is illegal. It seems that these mutual fund managers, the hedge fund managers, the guys who are buying this data, put a value on that. They think that they're getting some in- insight that the rest of the market hmm. isn't getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in itself, I always say, is a testament to their belief in an efficient market because they're, set, they're openly admitting, I can't beat the market without getting this inside data. Right, right, right. So let's take a quick breather. Interesting. We'll come back on that and finish up the article. article. Thank you. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management 
inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. We're entering our, uh, I think, the fourth segment of the show today. So this, this will be the, the fourth last, and final segment. It'll be the last one wow. before our, for next week's show. And uh, we're just covering an article entitled, Stocks, Stock Analysts Tell All. Uh, it was published on the WallStreetJournal.com. And again, written by Jason Zweig. And uh, we were just getting to the... Zweig. Uh, Zweig? Keep moving. Well, Jason and I are, are close friends, so okay. I don't feel too bad about that. But uh, getting to the uh, the heart of the matter here, I think, Ken, right before the break. The heart of the matter. You had asked uh, what the difference between a sell-side analyst and buy-side. So sure. I just quickly Googled up the uh, Investopedia definition. Oh, excellent. A better description for you. Perfect. And uh, simply put, the job of a sell-side research analyst is to follow a list of companies, all typically in the same industry, and provide regular research reports to the firm's clients. As a part of that process, the analysts will typically build models to project the firm's financials uh, results, as well as speak with the customer suppliers, competitors, and other sources with knowledge of the industry. From the public standpoint, the ultimate outcome of the analyst's work is a research report, mm-hmm. a set of financial estimates, a price target, and a recommendation as to the stock's expected performance. Okay. Uh, in practice, the job of the analyst is to convince institutional accounts to direct their trading through the trading desk of the analyst's firm, and the job is very much about marketing. In order to capture trading revenue, the analyst must be seen by the buy side as providing valuable services. Information is clearly valuable, and some analysts will constantly hunt for new information or proprietary angles on the industry. Hmm. Since nobody cares about the third iteration of the same story, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to be the first to the client with a new and different information. Of course, that is not the only way to stand out with clients. Institutional investors value one-on-one meetings with company management and will reward those analysts who arrange those meetings. On a very cynical level, there are times when the job of a sell-side analyst is much like that of a high-priced travel agent. Complicating matters is the fact that companies will often restrict access to management by those analysts who do not tow their line. Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys were waving. I wasn't sure. If I just... 
No, I'm hearing a little bit of a knocking in the background. I'm trying to identify where it's coming from. But go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Placing analysts in the uncomfortable position of giving a, the street useful news and opinion, which may be negative, and maintaining cordial relations with company management. So, real quick, the okay. buy side job description. In contrast to the sell side analyst, the job of the buy side analyst is much more about being right. Benefiting the fund with high alpha ideas is crucial, as is avoiding major mistakes. In point of fact, avoiding the negative is often a key part of the buy side analyst's job, and many analysts pursue their job from the mindset of figuring out what can go wrong with an idea. Learn how to generate higher returns while keeping the same risk profile. On a day-to-day -day basis, the jobs do not look all that different. Buy side analysts will be reading news, blah, 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 um, tracking down information, all with the eye toward making the best stock recommendations. Though the large institutions will have their analysts allocated similarly to sell-side analysts, buy-side analysts in general have broader coverage responsibilities. It is not uncommon for funds to have analysts covering technology or industrials sectors, whereas most sell-side firms would have several analysts covering, covering particular industries within those sectors like mm. software. So okay. basically it looks like if you have a firm that's trying to get clients to trade with them, they mm -hmm. have sell-side analysts who are generating proprietary research to get convince that firm to trade um, with them. And so to do that, as we're coming back to the Wall Street Journal article, uh, what they go on to say in this article is, hey, right here in the second paragraph, it says, asked who their, who was their most important group of clients, 81.5% of the analysts picked hedge funds, 13.3% chose retail brokerage clients. Fewer than a quarter of the analysts said that the accuracy and timeliness of their earnings forecasts were very important to their compensation. Only 35%. <laughs> said that the profitability of their stock recommendations was crucial in determining how much they earned. Wow. Their standing in analyst rankings or broker votes, these are all quotations, however, essentially, uh, however, essentially how they score in media surveys, broker votes, and other annual popularity contests among clients was very important in shaping compensation for 67% of the analysts. Here's a quote. I came into the industry thinking success would be based on how well my stock picks do, one analyst told researchers, but a lot of it ends up being, what are your broker votes? Another reported 25% of the allocation or bonus pool is based on broker votes. Um, Can you, do you, let's clarify what that is a little bit. So uh, they're standing, uh, I'm reading here again, uh, their quote, standing in analyst rankings or broker votes. So that just means what exactly? They're, if they're they must be doing client surveys, basically. Um, and getting feedback from the, the users of the cell site um, research. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. But well, the main thing here is that is, it isn't based on the accuracy or timeliness of the information. <laughs> no, there's nobody doing any independent <laughs> measurement, I guess, of their uh, the results of yeah, the reports. And looking from the outside, that's exactly what you would expect. You'd hope, anyway, that's what the results are based on, right? You'd want you to, but going into it, oh, that's why I think they probably get paid based on their accuracy and timeliness of information. Turns out to be not the case, because that'd be most pertinent, right? right. I find that pretty funny. Um, so it kind of talks about approximately one in four analysts has been pressured by a supervisor to lower earnings forecasts, presumably because the markets, uh, because that makes the forecast easier for companies to beat, thereby pleasing investors and companies alike. 
Only half of the analysts said that primary research, like discussions with customers and suppliers, is very useful in forecasting earnings or recommending stocks. Nearly 40% of the analysts said that it's very likely they would lose access to management or be frozen out of question and answer sessions on conference calls if they issued an earnings forecast well below the Wall Street average. As one analyst put it, chillingly, most of the sell side is worried about what management thinks of them uh, than they are about what they're, whether they are doing a good job for investors. Wow. So just a, another minor glimpse into the dark underbelly of Wall Street. Yeah, no kidding, huh? And involving in a game that we refuse to play in. But if you're the average investor getting these reports, it's not good. Um, and what I'm gleaning out of this, and it would, it would also correlate well with the cases we've seen of hedge fund managers getting in prison because of insider information, is really what they're looking for is not really estimates of earnings or things like that, but what kind of private information can you share with me mm -hmm. that the rest of the market doesn't know? Um, what would happen if analysts suspect a deliberate attempt by management to misrepresent a company's financial statements? Most said they would respond by seeking additional information, but 4% said it isn't at all likely they would request any for further explanation from management or investigate the outside company. Uh, investigate outside the company. 7% there was almost no chance they would lower their earnings forecast or downgrade the stock. Mm. Those aren't very impressive numbers if the point they're trying to make is that analysts aren't are dirty. I mean, yeah. four, only 4%. Sure. More than two-thirds said the private phone calls with management were far and away the most important factor in their work. It's customary for analysts to have private phone discussions one-on-one, mano-a-mano, with a company's chief financial officer shortly after the company's public conference call to discuss its quarterly earnings. You get the details that they're not necessarily going to go into on a public call with investors, said one analyst. Then we can go to clients and say, this is our understanding of the situation. This is what the company says. This is what we think. Added the analyst, it's a way for them to broadcast. We're sort of like a megaphone for them. Um, if that's true, how independent is it? Well, and I'm sure that the companies releasing the analysts aren't, they're, they're doing it to all the analysts that they're talking to. Yeah, right. Um, Interesting. Any investor especially an individual investor still clinging to the delusion that Wall Street analysts provide independent objective and a skeptical perspective on company needs to read this study. So just another word if you're out there buying individual stocks. Um, I don't know where people are getting their research from. I mean, lots of places, I guess. You know, there's the Zach's research folks. There's uh, S&P still does that. Value Line still does that. All kinds of those types of places, but... Well, either we're out of time. So uh, we'll talk about this and many other, other topics next week. Thanks for tuning in and joining us on Empirical Investing Radio. And if you want to contact us it's, uh, during the week at the firm, it's 1-800-923-4307. Thank you and have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 